Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I'm joined by Spotted Toad, famous of Twitter and the book author, a very interesting thinker on education whom I am pleased to interview for our Pomocon series. Thanks first of all for joining me. If you'll allow me to introduce you to our audience here, I got to know you because of our common friends like my previous guest on the Pomocon series, James Poulos. You seem to do a lot of thinking about public policy and are tied up somehow with social science and quant studies. As you told me moderately, you're not a quant guy, but to some extent you use quant resources. And so it's always interesting to follow your observations and how you relate them to data and measurements. And of course, everybody can find you on Twitter as Spotted Toad, and everybody can just hop onto Amazon and get your book, which is on education, on your experience in education, and which I just read recently, and I thought it was great. And I thought, therefore, we should have this discussion on education, on public education, that is, and what it is that you've learned from your experience and how come you decided to write a book about it in the first place. Thanks so much. I was a teacher from 2000 to 2010. I taught at three different schools. The first was a large public middle school in the Southwest Bronx, where I was a Teacher America Corps member. And after that, I taught for six years in a very small new public middle school, also in New York, in the Lower East Side. And then I taught for two years out in the suburbs in a largish public high school. I talk about all three experiences in the book, but I focus on the first one mainly because I think I have the most distance from it. Also because I think the reason to write, at least for me, I haven't ever thought of myself as a writer, been a reader, but not a writer. The reason to write was just these experiences that sort of picked at me even after I stopped teaching. So I think a lot of the reason I kept teaching longer than most Teach for America core members was that I wasn't good at first. I was bad. And it was important to me to get good and to be somewhere where I could get good and learn from what I was doing. And that was really the second school I taught at, which was the smaller school. But still, these experiences at my first school kind of weighed on me in a certain way and trying to come to some kind of understanding of what I was doing as a teacher, what the students who were in that school were trying to face and and what we were doing in school together was really important to me. In early 2016, I started this blog and I sort of had the idea of this book already when I started the blog. And the blog got some fair amount of attention for sort of more quantitative posts and a few political essays I wrote at the same time, whereas most of the components of the book, which are more personal, more philosophical, kind of weren't what people were interested in. You know, they were, they're interesting to me and I wanted to put them together in some kind of order. So I, I think a reasonable criticism of the book is that it's not linearly ordered. And when I've thought about writing something like this for a long time, I tried to think about how to arrange this experience linearly, how to compress it into a single year. And I definitely failed at that. So I think that generously some sort of internal logic to how I go from part to part and within the individual pieces, I hope there's some coherence, but you kind of have to go along for the ride. And, you know, my hope is that some of the themes come together at the end and you walk away feeling like what I'm saying about school or my experience in school or mistakes I made as a teacher and what I was learning from my students is something that's more broadly applicable, even though it's admittedly a lot of disparate strands. Yeah, in certain ways, it seems more like an essay and with a bit of a novel thrown in. 
the first thing you reminded me of was British Analysis' new book, White. Not because you treat the same things, but because it's a very similar genre, a combination of autobiography and cultural observations, which struck me when I read that book as an attempt to replace the novel, to do the same thing, but replacing fiction with experience and expertise when available. So I had no trouble following the plot, so to speak, or rather, as you put it, going along for the ride. I read the book in one afternoon. I loved it. I recommended it. I'm glad to have been able to get you on the podcast and tell people, just go look for it, people. It's called 13 Ways of Going on a Field Trip, after the Wallace Stevens title. It does not disappoint. I thought that it was a very well-chosen title, strange as it is, because that is a poem about how to make sense of human experience and the traps that the intellect sets for itself, so to speak. The, the fact that the intellect is forever making metaphors out of things and <laughs> not seeing quite what is there. But also that there's no other way to get to things but through metaphors, first of all. They thought, here's a guy who goes through his experience and makes sense of it in a very poetic way that's indeed very, very rare, especially in public policy debates. But since I am an avid reader of and writer on poetry, I thought, finally, my guy, one of these people who <laughs> want who is not a Philistine, I have got to get this man and interview him. <laughs> that's so, really kind. Said, it's a good book uh, people should read. That's extremely kind. There's a genre, there's a very American genre that this book is taken from, and, and it was big in the 60s, and it was white teacher goes to a ghetto school, and what does he learn from it? And there's Jonathan Kozel, and there's John Holt, and there's James Herndon, and there's a lot of other writers in this genre. And then in the 80s, we kind of had the teacher movie genre, where it's, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer, or I think it's James Olmos, you know, get in front of these kids and they change their lives. The irony is that I was there in that room because of this genre, and especially because of those movies, probably. Because, you know, Wendy Kopp goes to all these rich people when she's a senior in Princeton and says, I want to take the kids graduating from elite colleges and send them into poor schools. And they said, sure. Teach for America made $500 million in endowment by the middle of the 2000s. It was an wow. in successful as a nonprofit by this unprecedented scale. And why was that? And I think there's obviously a lot of social forces behind that. So we were talking before the podcast about how Americans relate to equality and the ideals of equality and whether the inequality in schools is sort of a fatal blow to that notion of equality. But another way of saying it is that by the 90s, when Wendy Kopp started this, we didn't have anything but schools that could be that sort of locus of aspiration, right? So it's not that there's some other dream that we have as an alternative to somehow fixing education. And I think all these forces came together, and Teach for America is definitely a representative of it, but there's been an enormous revolution in public education from roughly the 90s through the beginning of Obama's second term, where you had the adoption of these national standards, you had No Child Left Behind, and which literally said in the legislation that all children are going to pass these state standardized tests by 2014. The Lake Wobegon theory of the world, that everyone's going to be above average. And, you know, there was a revolution in, in teacher evaluation. They were going to use tests and test scores to evaluate teachers much more strictly. They were going to increase the amount of sort of observation of teachers dramatically. 
And we were going to adopt very intensive testing methods. Um, so in the early 2010s, there was a group of common core tests that were adopted across the large majority of states to match these new standards. And amazingly, this all happened seemingly overnight to a very large degree through bipartisan compromise. A blogger who I talk to a lot, Education Realist, describes this as the merger of progressive aspiration and dreams with Republicans' desire to cut down the teachers' unions, who were one of their significant political foes. But all these things came together in this moment of great aspiration. And in a way, we've been walking back from that over the last few years. And I think there's a definite turn away from the sort of valorization of the super teacher and the ideal of educational reform as the silver bullet just in the last few years. And in some ways, this is bringing on some new problems. But the book's about my experience and a few kids I knew and what I was trying to get from that. Yeah, I also thought about these movies and books you mentioned. The, you know, the oldest education movie of this kind I know is this old Spencer Tracy thing that won him an Oscar. Boys Town, I think, something like that from the late 30s, when Mickey Rooney was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, there's Glenn Ford in that Asphalt Jungle thing from the mid-50s, which was about stamping down youthful rebellion and being a tough guy and administering tough love. But then things gradually become more and more sentimental in Hollywood, of course. And I think, so far as I have seen young teachers, indeed, there's a lot of idealism. There's a lot of high hopes, absolutely no experience, but essentially good intentions and a certain shame before class issues. It's very often people going into lower classes to educate there with a half-unconfessed hope, as it were, of making up for the difference somehow. And I think that, as you put it, the fact that from the 90s onwards there was this massive push for rescuing public education shows that, aside from the high hopes, there was quite a lot of desperation or giving up, as it were. The magic bullet teacher is the really last resort. It comes after institutional failure, including, of course, the institutional failure, so far as education is concerned, of the teachers' unions. I'm not sure what their political influence is these days. It seems considerable. But their successes in achieving new landmarks of progress in education are nil. And that would seem to be a big dent in progressive America. You know, in, on any number of other things, people could love or hate what progressives want. But when it comes to education, everybody would sort of want better things for kids. Nobody seems to have any idea how to do it. And so this other sort of book like yours, where you get to see some of the experience of a teacher and try to figure out why that is the way it is, seems to me much more interesting both than the idealism and the obsession with quant. I think I liked the book so much just because I could see the scenes properly. Why are people acting this way? Why are such kids saying such things? Try to understand them, first of all. I, of course, have a special pleasure in books that avoid jargon and ideological slogans. So, again, I thought, here, here is my champion. He's the man who will tell me how it is. And I'm, you know, it, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm honest about that because I too have gone into schools to lecture, but it's more often been rich kids than poor kids. And I have been able to detect the difference, but never done it for long enough to understand that difference. So if you feel like talking more about your experience in class and what sorts of things you felt you had to learn, what sorts of things you felt you were getting wrong when it came to getting anything across and becoming a real teacher, 
One part of your book that I thought was very impressive is your insistence on what it means to be a human being in a body among other people who have their own bodies there. <laughs> How restless kids get, what the effect of one restless kid is on others what the effect of a teacher is if he knows how to comport himself if he's steady or less steady his simple emotional sense is he the adult in the room or not all of these things what effects they have in the moment but also what effects they have over time i thought this was really insightful stuff i'm not saying you're some kind of original but they were all seem to me genuine insights so if you feel like talking about your classroom experience i would be grateful Sure. I mean, I said I was a bad teacher at first, and I was. And a lot of this was qualities which bookish young men are inclined to, disorganization and prioritizing a new and fresh idea over doing something that's regular and provides structure to the people coming in and out of that room. As you say, the experience of being in a room with 35, 36, 37 young people is pretty different from most of our lives now. A lot of what makes school important is that it is this rare moment and sort of rare institution that still involves us all being together in the same place and talking to each other. And so on an average day, my own children spend much more time talking to other human beings than I do. Certainly in terms of physical space, I might be on the phone or writing emails, but it's not the same. And so that experience of being all together in the room, it's promise and problem. There's a way in which when something happens for good or ill in a classroom with all these young people for whom the school is their world and the most important part of their world, because especially before high school, this is a lot of what's going on for them in some ways more than for a richer group of kids, because their parents may not be able to offer as many alternatives outside of school. So if you go to some suburban middle school, the kids have a million activities after school by which they're expected to define themselves and expected to contrast their own identity to the one that they're presented with at school and sort of made to maintain. And for myself, even though I grew up in a time where there wasn't this same level of sort of hyper expectation that we'd be producing and improving ourselves outside of school, you know, my, my life from three to seven at night was a million times more interesting to me than my life during school. I don't want to generalize for all of my students in the Bronx or elsewhere, but I do think that simply by virtue of the fact that their parents expected them to be home as soon as they left the school or as soon as they left the after school program, the social experience of school was extremely important to them. One of the effects of school being such an important part of life for middle school kids and of spending this time together is that you have good events and bad, which have a sort of social resonance beyond an individual person. And so a fight has meaning, right? There was a fight in somebody's class, and so you have to go tell everybody about it. Or I, I tell the story about losing my temper and uh, saying some things I still regret, and that had meaning. And when good things happen, or at least from my perspective as a teacher, when good things happen, so one boy decided he was going to make a bottle rocket. And so we carved out these fins out of wood and we brought it down to the schoolyard with a bicycle pump and a cork and we shoot it off and it goes up three feet with all this, you know, water coming out of it. And everyone in the school thought this was the most hilarious thing ever. <laughs> you know, I think it was like my last name's Folly <laughs> was the name of this. And, you know, other events, I tell the story about visiting kids' houses you know, mostly because of behavioral problems and talking to their parents there. But, you know, that had meaning in the school. So I came back and he makes home visits was written big on my chalkboard. 
And so your own experience as a teacher has this sort of dual quality, right? So you're making strategic decisions a lot about what you're doing, what you think is a meaningful way to spend this time together. And that's framed by their expectations of what school is and what they need to get out of it. They come to school expecting they're going to put in work and they're going to learn something. For the vast majority of kids, school is not an extension of another set of preoccupations. It's a set of relationships and habits and obligations. And so you're inevitably, as a teacher, stepping into those expectations. You're going to show up in the room and you're going to write something down. Writing something down is the price kids pay for not getting into trouble, for not having their parents mad at them. You know, somewhere along the line, you hope there's learning attached to that, but it's inevitably going to be an imperfect match. So the reason we learn things as human beings to a very large degree is because it's common knowledge among the people we care about and listen to, and it exists in our shared social world. Activity and doing and writing things down contribute to that, but it's not really the same thing. The longer I taught, the more you kind of see this balance between the maintenance of order as a meaningful goal, because who wants to be in a place where everyone's miserable and yelling at each other and it's chaos and people are throwing paper balls and nobody knows when the last time, like, this test you were supposed to have taken never came back. And why should I be doing this anyway? And so there's a sort of collapse of political authority that happens in classrooms, you know, some of the time when the teacher doesn't establish his role in the way that students can agree to. At the same time as you hope that given we're all here together in this room, we can see something new, right? The point of that Wallace Stevens poem, you know, you're looking at the blackbird. Right. So you're seeing some piece of the world. And ideally in school, you're seeing some of that together with other people and you can understand it as a thing in, in the world together. You know, I talk a lot about all these bugs I had in my classroom and the baby Malagasy giant hissing cockroaches escaping from the pen and vanishing out into the classroom and these giant millipedes crawling all over the place. There was ideally some intellectual content to what we were doing and to trying to understand the scientific process of how these living organisms would respond to particular environmental cues or how we could measure and observe their behavior. But also, you have this hope that somewhere in there, you just realize that you just don't know. You as a teacher and as a student and you collectively don't know what is out there in the world. And I think the blessing of being a science teacher, you know, is that at least in a small way, there is that piece of the world in the classroom that is something beyond what is written down and ordered from the curricular czars or the Gates Foundation trying to twist state departments of education into adopting one set of rules or another. But there's something there that you can experience as a group and see as a window into a, another part of the world and that you don't have control over so I, there's a joke about on Twitter, we have the I effing love science thing. And it's just a bunch of pictures of like galaxies. I, I fucking love science. That's the opposite, right? Of what science offers us, which is that the rules governing our world, while available to our shared perception and gradual understanding and inch by inch acquisition, ultimately are beyond us. And we have to work to go find it, to see what's really there. We're going to fail 
most experiments are not going to work. You know, so I think that all of that is tied to this experience of being together in a group with other people, which is really important because we don't spend that time together as people. You know, one friend said, why do people like to shoot up schools? Well, it's because they were miserable there. And because it's the place where their misery with other people, their misery at the kind of injury of our social lives together is most apparent. You know, I think for some people that's like, well, let's get rid of that. Let kids go online and learn or let it be more just depersonalized. I mean, obviously there's some validity somewhere in there and some portion of the school experience, which really is hurtful and harmful. But at the same time, you know, it's like the rain is coming into us and we want to knock out our little remaining shelter, our little remaining tarp over our heads. Like we've knocked out so many other aspects of our shared social life. And this is one we're sort of huddled in under. And, you know, so we identify our experience of it as this incredibly competitive, unequal experience because we're all so focused on this one experience. I mean, how many online conversations that capture everybody are about that one fact of who gets into elite colleges, which at one level is this incredibly unimportant aspect of our society because it's not clear that it makes that big a difference to economic outcomes. I mean, you, I had a very excellent student whose parents decided not to pay for college and she went to community college and transferred into the state university and was making more money than me four years after high school. And, you know, <laughs> there is something to be said that this is all a charade. All the aspects of the education system that focus on it purely as an allocation of status, you know, it's our belief in it is sustaining it as this sort of collective obsession. <laughs> yeah, education is far more conventional than we dare to admit. And my guess about the obsession with the status of higher education is twofold. On the one hand, since at least the 60s, but in certain ways since World War II. We have believed that this is the path to the future, at least the best future. And on the other hand, we have learned in recent decades that there may be no future, or if there is any future, there's only enough for some. And mm -hmm. this becomes not just the portal for leaping into the future higher education, especially prestigious higher education, but what's worse, it becomes the way to separate classes, the deserving mm -hmm. from the undeserving. If it's meritocratic, if it's bureaucratic, if it's regulated, if it's public and everybody's competing, then if it should happen that maybe even a majority of Americans end up pretty miserable, that's on them. And the people who made it up top don't necessarily owe them anything. There are deep, unpleasant things baked into whenever a society obsesses over a convention and doesn't worry so much about what that convention is supposed to achieve and what it's supposed to keep at bay, of course. And I think you can also look at the importance of school in the way you pointed it out above. For poor people, school actually matters a great deal as a social experience, even if it's bad often. For people who are doing well, not necessarily rich, just people who live in fairly stable social arrangements with fairly confident adults around them, those kids don't need schools that much, not least of all because they have so many other options in their lives. But of course, for the people who depend on school for their only real social activity, and one of the few activities where lots of kids see some number of adults who are supposedly responsible, supposedly successful, supposedly to be imitated, if not admired, that matters much more. And indeed, in a way, it's the last thing that's left, whereas to a very large extent, the transformation of education into a science or a measurement would seem to suggest that maybe we just need to abandon this last social problem. 
that we just have to admit that we failed at dealing with the fact that human beings have bodies and the bodies get in the way of education. (laughs) (laughs) And that I find quite worrisome. And that's why I was so grateful reading through your book, just thinking about what does it mean that all these kids need to learn to behave as pupils, students, not just as kids that they have to learn to behave to each other and also to the teacher. And the teacher has to somehow manage to get this across in a situation where there's not a lot you can do. Any teacher is going to be caught between an educational system and the kids and the parents, and there's no way to make these things fit. Again, especially for poor kids, education has become a combination of your food, your shelter for a part of the day, so it's essentially daycare, also your moral education. It's not like if parents want their kids to have a moral education, they'll just haul them off to church every Sunday or Sunday school. It's not the case anymore. And so all of these burdens are put on a public system that's less and less able to deal even with the burdens that it was supposed to deal with before all these other things were added. Society forces a school to be so much more than it can be, exactly at the time when it no longer believes that schooling achieves much. Right. So that's a great point. So, you know, it's like the Henry V speech about, you know, everyone puts it all on the king, right? So school is our king to some degree, right? We want to put it all on there. And that notion of crisis is animating in a way. And it's a mixed blessing because there's a lot of hope in believing that schooling can be saved and it can be transformed When I look at the educational reform movement, I admire a lot of people I got to know through that. They're working hard, and some of them have some success. Because we put so many different demands on school, we sacrifice the little bit they can achieve. So I told the little story at the beginning of the book about how my school was going to try these small learning communities that you were going to have theme-based schools within a school. And at the same time, they had decided that the beginning of the year was for silent reading. So they would simultaneously have one of the schools within a school be the media-themed school, and they would go down to the PA system and go read the weather report and say whose birthday it was and, and tell you know what was being served in the cafeteria and all this stuff at the same time as they were yelling at the kids to be quiet and read. And it, <laughs> So every agenda has an equal and opposite agenda. And (laughs) I contribute to this now in my job because every policy is interfering with some other policy. (laughs) And putting all that aside, people have lives and interests and thoughts on their own. And childhood exists as a time that can, to a large degree, take care of itself, right? So if you don't go around knocking kids over the head with two by fours, and they get a decent amount to eat and and a decent amount of space to run around in, a lot of times they'll turn out okay, you know? And the ability of the school to shape a person is compromised by the fact that people are living things, they're growing up, and there's a plan within us for how we're gonna grow up to a large degree apart from that. I think that right now there's a lot of panic about genetics and what genetics will say about human differences and what kinds of limits these discoveries about genetics are going to play on our aspirations for other people. And in some ways, this is all understandable, even though I'm upset and frustrated just examining how elite 
cultural bodies like the New York Times react to new information and, and take on a stance of fear and loathing towards scientific discovery to a large degree. But at, at the same time, stepping back from all that, just the recognition that to a, a large degree, our own human development and not just our differences from one another is moderated in a way that we don't have control over and, and nobody has control over. It's within us right? And childhood is this process of growing up as a living thing. We moderate that by our cultural experience and by who we are with, with one another. But the living plant or the living tree that we're going to become is of itself. It's not created by our social situations. And the school plays this role of both acting out our aspirations, and it exists as a vehicle for aspirations, and to a large degree, sharing those aspirations with each other, believing in something together, believing that as a school we can achieve something together, that what we're doing is worthy, is critically important. And so the schools that are nice places are these very purposeful communities where people, even if they don't agree all the time and they argue with each other, they believe in what they're doing as a group. And at the same time, there's enormous limitation to what that can achieve simply by virtue of us being people. Yeah, there's always going to be a tension between our aspirations and what we're actually doing and what that leads to. And school should be a place for dealing with that problem, presumably because adults should be somewhat less enthusiastic and histrionic than kids. And <laughs> notice right. a bit more. This unfortunately is not the case. And another thing that I've been thinking through scratching my head after reading your book is you describe a situation where we have achieved the fullness of enlightenment hopes, fully identifying virtue with knowledge. You have to get kids to learn and the learning will make them good kids. Without learning, they wouldn't be good kids. And mm. I wondered, well, you know, how much do you actually have to teach kids? There were societies 50 years ago in America that they were pretty decent people. They got us to where we are here and we seem to be pretty pleased with that. And they weren't as obsessed with learning stuff. And that sometimes just gets in the way of the true moral education of a school, which is less moralizing and more kids learning to deal with each other and with adults, learning how to deal with not being violent or not being too crazy, and learning that sometimes if they are crazy or violent, you can live with it, they can overcome the momentary problem. All of these kinds of examples that simply accumulate over time, build them habits, give them things to imitate, and an experience to see how well can I imitate this? Could I do better at it? Or am I doing well enough? Or maybe I should be imitating something else. All of these things that should be happening are somehow frustrated by the obsession with teaching, when in fact we don't really know much about how is it best to get kids to being rational, which is what we hope by our enlightenment system. We think that if we bureaucratize the process more, that's going to be more success. Or, failing that, at least it's not going to be anybody's personal responsibility. <laughs> because it was a system, it's not my fault. And everybody right. can blame that system and endlessly fight over it. The parents don't need to feel guilty anymore. The kids don't need necessarily to feel guilty. And certainly not the educational system or the political advice and influence and the hopes invested in it. So there's a big problem with enlightenment. And another thing I thought about, especially because of this example you gave, every day in every way some kind of new fantasy theory of education <laughs> has to be imposed. I guess partly that's because teachers get bored or maybe they will have some progressive idealistic illusions that they don't want to shatter. But I fear that in a way it's worse because it comes from elites 
who are just trying their desperate way to deal with the fact that they know now, or they believe they know, that most people are never going to be enlightened. What you need is to fill their heads with fantasies that are helpful. Fantasies that are salutary socially, and that above all will of course justify the elites we already have. And that's just crazy. I mean, if there's one thing worse than insisting on knowledge for kids who haven't gotten there yet, is insisting on fantasies, which they're fully capable of doing by themselves already. And, you know, how is any theory of education going to compete with the actual fantasies available to kids in pop music or on their screens? That is never going to work. But it is even better than the bureaucratic rationality at stymieing their awareness of their own nature. And maybe everybody's awareness of the fact that human beings have a nature of their own and you have to look for its individuation. To what extent this kid is like the other and to what extent they're not. And how are you going to deal with that? You have a lot of examples in your book of the crazy mix of nature and convention in schools, teaching 17-year-olds and 13-year-olds together, which under the pretense of the bureaucratic system of knowledge should not make the 17-year-old feel humiliated and bored. (laughs) But in reality, and of course it shouldn't make the 13-year-old impressed, awed, scared maybe, but in reality... And uh, any number of other crazy things like that where people simply cannot take into account the natures of the people actually involved in the process so that they be dealt with as human beings. It might not be terribly successful, but it would certainly be far more dignified to admit that they are actual human beings. The notion that they either comply with a fantasy or otherwise they're not worthy, you know, it's mind-boggling. Right. It's something I think about a lot. My wife was an English teacher, and there was a movement in the schools while she was teaching to move to this so-called workshop model of education, where instead of reading a book as a group, you're going to all read your own book, and the teacher is going to circulate and is going to help the individual kid with you know, what, what does it mean to read this book? What does it mean to ask a question of what the author is trying to get at? What does it mean to, you know, interrogate the text? But you're doing this individually with each kid because they're all reading their own book. When they're writing, it's, you know, maybe we're all writing this kind of historical narrative, but everyone's going to do their own piece. There's something to be said for it. It's not totally crazy because people are on such different levels. But at the same time, it is crazy because you're all in the room together. And she got into trouble because she was teaching these kids Romeo and Juliet in the eighth grade, and they were acting out the balcony scene. And, you know, and you'd hear kids on the playground saying, you know, y'all a bunch of Montagues. (laughs) And that was a shared experience, right? And you could come to understand the text because it was shared, because it was real with you and the other people in that room. You know, she got in trouble because it wasn't this workshop model. Just the insanity of the idea that if you face kids with something they've never done before, read fairly sophisticated, fairly abstract things that they have to keep in their heads and try to think through, they should also do it alone, not share it with other kids. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but somehow people don't think about these things because it get in the way. I mean, there's not a lot that you can really invent so long as you have these kinds of old-fashioned ideas like having people read Romeo and Juliet. There's nothing modern about that. It's been around for hundreds of years. If we're sure that it's a pretty good idea, we would probably do best to stick with it. But, you know, stick-to-itiveness is just not one of the virtues of the system, and everybody involved in it is trapped in a kind of irrational change, both unpredictable and ineffective. And, yeah, it's a big problem. It would take some kind of change to get people to stop doing things all the time. Another one of the great points you make in the book is that people obsess over achieving and doing to prove themselves, as it were, to prove that they exist and they exist in a very worthy way. Whereas, in fact, somewhat less doing 
<laughs> would be very helpful for people to figure out what's actually going on, what they're achieving, and to live with it. The achievements are pretty good, but you don't have to be obsessive about achieving enough to prove yourself because otherwise you're not a real human being. And so there's a deep, massive insecurity built into the expectations. And on the level of science that we have to learn, like you taught science, but you know, even beyond that, on the level of teaching in a scientific way that is politically accountable, legally established, all that stuff is supposed to make us all the same since we learn the same things that are tested in the same way. But then we're going to make up by being individuals in our fantasies. And this, of course, gets reality exactly backwards. In our fantasies, we tend to be the same or else we wouldn't have popularity. Mm-hmm. Nothing would be popular if we didn't all look at the same thing, buy the same thing, if we didn't now minify in the same way. It is, in fact, in our learning where we can be different, since not all people have the same aptitudes and not all people have the same aptitudes to the same degree. And yeah. this is just a massive mistake built into the system, hoping that people will take what's inside of their heads, their fantasies, and that will satisfy them for the fact that they're not getting the things they should be getting. But it's not. You alluded to this fear that you know maybe especially grips the elites, that there isn't enough future to go around. And that puts the stakes on everything so much higher because the question of who is represented in that narrow circle of elites becomes so privileged. And each of those people is expected to stand for multitudes. And who they stand for is ideally bureaucratically legible, you know, an easy and convenient label for them to then stand for those people. And, you know, it's hard because we reasonably enough want schools to be livable and humane places for people. And they do fail sometimes. And they are hugely resourced. This is like $25,000 per kid per year. And the schools really are a mess. It's really unpleasant in an objective way. Not just that they're failing to live up to some bureaucratic ideal. And so there's reasonable anxiety about that basic civic right that the U.S. has mostly tried to stand by for however long and was obviously hugely world historically important that public education did exist. I mean, I know some people will say I'm I'm wrong for this, but I don't believe it. (laughs) I mean, Brian Kaplan will say that this is all just a rat race, that there was nothing to it except separating sheep from goats and deciding who gets allotted the privileges of the society and proving and signaling your innate value to this industrializing economy. Is that a big piece of what's going on in public education? Of course. But is it everything? Is that why this system spread so rapidly and so effectively where it did? I don't think so. But you brought it to fantasy. And I do think that that's the nexus for the next few years. As we were talking about before the podcast, the experience of educated American elites is an experience of increasing immersion in fantasy of various kinds. And I participated in it, too, as someone who is extremely online by virtue of my own compulsions. I experienced this submersion in this world of media, but it's having drastic effects on our educated population's ability to manage with you know, the basic reality of a lot of life. And because, as you put it so well, schools are places where we have to deal with ourselves as bodies and as you know, physical <laughs> organisms, the school shows up that disjuncture 
So there was a big move, not quite mandated, but strongly encouraged by the Obama administration to end removal from the classroom, not just removal from the school for misbehavior, but even kicking kids out to the dean's office or whatever. And this has been pretty persuasively shown by, I would say, four minimum credible studies to have had negative impacts, especially on African-American and poor students' achievement. This is not some mystery. It's been very convincing. And there are individual stories that are absolutely savage and where you know, a school not far from the one I taught at in the Bronx. And the Bronx, in a lot of ways, is doing pretty well. New York is a thriving city, and even the Bronx is doing pretty well. A school not far from the one I taught at, a boy was killed, and his best friend, was his lung was punctured. After a gradual loss of authority within the school, the aspirations of the people running the country are just totally out of line with how things are going to run. And teachers, inevitably, they're the representatives, not just of authority, but of bureaucratic authority beyond that. But they're put in the position where because elites or because, you know, the broader society cannot accept differentiated outcomes or any degree of failure, they become the natural scapegoat to a large degree. So we moved from this ideal that if only you could be a super teacher, you would fix it all to the reason why disparity exists is because you're not just mediocre or incompetent, but you are an active participant and a better in you know the inequality of our society. And you are the source of racism. You as teacher, you as parent. So Richard Carranza, who's the new chancellor in New York City, tweets out, you know, these racist white parents arriving at board meetings to complain about these new integration plans. These racist white parents send their kids to minority white schools. These are schools which are 30, 40 percent white and which the Board of Ed wants to merge with another school that's zero percent white. And the parents complain because this other school is draws mostly from, you know, the housing projects next to it. And I know a lot of people say, oh, these hypocritical New York liberals. And maybe that's true. Of course, everyone's a hypocrite when it comes to their own kids. Everybody. But the basic attitude that you as the manufacturer or designer of the system are looking for people to take as scapegoats is totally troubling. And it's going to result in, I think, just exit from the system. You know, the New York Times published this ridiculous long article a couple of years ago, which won the author of MacArthur Prize, which was about if the 15% of students in New York City public schools who are white were better spread, this would solve the problems of the New York City public schools. Despite the fact that most of those students are in Staten Island and couldn't get anywhere anyway. And so it's this process of looking for a scapegoat for a system rather than looking for a way to make it generative and make it open and make it hopeful. You know, obviously, I'm not a huge fan of President Trump, and, and there's a lot of reasons why his rise, while it responded to earlier trends among liberals, has abetted this feeling of division and this feeling that any measure of justice can only be achieved by identifying the scapegoats and punishing them. In a better world, we would have someone who could stand out and describe a mode for us to be, which both rejects these kinds of politics of scapegoating, which is incredibly popular in our sort of cultural organs, while also not abandoning this idea that we have a minimal inclusive aspirations for what we're trying to do. 
Yeah, it's an incredibly dangerous situation now because part of this was super obvious a long time ago and it's always obvious and of course people never see it, which is that exalted hopes necessarily lead to disappointment, which returns them again as hatred. Whenever we love something very much and it doesn't happen, especially if it's something we love that just doesn't exist or is beyond nature's possibility to offer it to us, then a lot of hatred returns and the desire to blame. And we're of course going through that, but in certain ways we are in a worse situation than simply disappointed hopes returning as hatred. It's the fact that a large part of a social model, part of which was public schools, and it was part of the nobility of progress, public schools, meritocracy and education, these were all noble attempts to make democracy the best it could be. But their failure comes at exactly the point where liberalism is becoming more and more vindictive, and while it can't run the system anymore, it certainly runs what's left of the media. That's not helpful. That's only making people hate each other more than they would otherwise, because it turns out in disappointing times, and there have been a lot of varied crises in society, economics, politics, foreign policy, culture over the last 20 years, there's a lot of people looking to blame somebody. And one thing crazier still than that is that if you get into the habit of blaming people, you very quickly move from thinking that you've been hurt and therefore you need revenge because it's tit for tat, the basis of all justice, but that this basis of justice is also a form of prophecy, that if you just punish your enemies, then things will be perfect again. But they won't be. You've just managed to get everybody a bit angrier than they were before. So this is a very unpleasant situation, and education is stuck because there was so much hope invested in it. And other parts of society that sustained people have collapsed. More pressure on education. And nevertheless, it has failed to deliver partly, maybe largely, because it was so overburdened. There's the bottom pressure of doing more and more for communities that are really suffering, but there's also the top pressure of fulfilling the fantasies of elites that are more and more desperate, that they're either losing power or they're losing control of the people. This was never going to end well, but for that <laughs> reason, it can't stop. I should say that this is a lot of depressive stuff we're going into, and another one of the, I guess, already many beautiful surprises about your book was that there is a certain kind of stoic resignation and a certain sense of the beauty of being human that comes out of awareness of our nature and possibilities. If we can get some things right, actually we can live with a lot that's not working out very well. You just need to know in a practical way that's proved with some regularity that it's a good thing to be human and there's some hope for the future. It doesn't have to be a fantasy of perfection. And so I don't assume there's going to be some generalized catastrophe. I'm quite hopeful about the American situation. But I do think that a lot of craziness is developing now and it won't stop anytime soon. Yeah, that's really kind of you. The students I talked about in the book were students which mostly I struggled with and to some degree failed in some of their cases, and in some of their cases more clearly than others. But, you know, their memory is a blessing for me. And, and maybe that's a selfish way to look at it. But my experience as a teacher was a blessing for me. It was a great experience. It gave me my life at so many different levels. I left it because at some point it seemed like this was the only thing I'd done and it was time to do something else. But I should say that I find myself enormously privileged to have done it and that I lived in a place that gave me that opportunity. And the hope is that this is mutual, right? So it's not just teachers getting to experience their dreams of what they're trying to do, but the students can live like reasonable and civilized people for a few hours a day and see something valid. 
I realized at some point I was sort of focusing on a few people who had died in the book. And I guess that comes back to this idea about learning and how we privilege learning over other kinds of experiences, especially when it comes to school, obviously. But just in general, <laughs> we're all going to go. We're all gone eventually. So there's memory left and validity, we hope, to what we experience together. But <laughs> we're not, we're not going to be taking tests when we're gone, presumably. <laughs> if the tests exist, they'll be of a different kind. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that, like it or not, we learn from school how to be human. It starts when we're young, it takes a lot of time, and even for teachers, it teaches them how to be adults. These things do stick for life in a way that many other things won't. Every organization has to have its ceremonies. If we had any capacity for reflection, we'd notice how much of our newly bureaucratized, regulated lives are just endless ceremonies for things that we could do otherwise. I mean, these things come up when we suddenly want to return to nature or we suddenly want to disrupt an industry or something like that. But otherwise, we don't quite realize just how much of the stuff we do is for the sake of community. And that's not a bad thing. In as much as our ceremonies tie us up to community, it's the first way we figure out how to deal with things. Whether we could replace that is really doubtful. If we could lower our expectations to some extent, if we had you know, a bit of political health, a lot of our problems would maybe not go away, but they'd stop being so exacerbated and everything would stop being a crisis. People who look around and say, we're not actually flying off the edge, we're not actually collapsing fully, are perfectly right. But the people who think that everything feels like a crisis are also right. And that's because of these terrifyingly high expectations. In a way, maybe it is just that people are nowadays super terrified of death and they're super obsessed with making the most out of life and as much of it as soon as possible, proving that somehow we're still here. But really, we could calm down some realizing that this is only this way for now and we don't quite know what is going to happen some significant number of years down the road. We're not that good at making predictions and we didn't predict we'd end up in this situation in the first place. The best we can really do is brave it. If we manage to do it together, that should be a major reassurance. And hopefully we can get better elites in the process. <laughs> These people who are less insanely hopeful and less insanely <laughs> disappointments. Or who can direct their hopes somewhere closer to home to the people they know and that, that we have these obligations in our private and personal lives that hopefully we can aspire to. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I appreciate it so much. And thank you for reading the book. It was lovely talking to you. It's a rare pleasure you know, to read somebody's book and then to have a chance to talk to him. And I'll be glad to have you on our Pomocon series again, whenever we can find a subject <laughs> we can uh, talk about as we have here. And meanwhile, people, just go on Amazon. It's called 13 Ways of Going on a Field Trip by Spotted Toad. It's a lovely book. It's all American. It's Emersonian, a reflection on experience. And it's real. It's not a fantasy for once. And so I highly recommend it. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thank you. Bye-bye.